Welcome back to JogPod from the Leeds School Geography Department. Each exciting episode, we invite pupils to select a topic of interest to them and draw out geography from it. This week, we're joined again by Tom and Miles. This is Miles and Tom back with another podcast. Today, shifting our focus from cricket to football. Thank you so much, Miles. And as you've mentioned in this episode, uh, before it completely loses its relevance, uh, we'll be discussing the geography involved in uh, the Qatar World Cup that took place in November 2022. Yes, we've decided to allow a couple of months to give us some time to reflect on the tournament and its rich geography. You must have been living under a rock not to see the news surrounding the controversy of the World, the World Cup in the lead-up last November. And of course, in this episode of the podcast, uh, we're going to talk through three geographical issues that have encompassed right. uh, the tournament last year. The human rights issues, obviously, the environmental effects of the tournament, and we'll throw in some uh, globalisation factors that have also played a part. All the controversy uh, really began in 2010 um, when Qatar was selected to host this tournament. And what was that initial controversy about? Well, as we know, the hot temperature of the country, the desert country, um, the World Cup was hosted in the UK winter, uh, which greatly disrupted the Premier League season. Um, in addition, uh, there were some questions asked about the, the sort of reliability of the draw. Uh, and if any corruption was involved. Anyway, you guys can read that on the BBC, and we're not really old enough to observe it uh, properly firsthand, so I think it's time to cut to the real nitty-gritty geography of uh, more recent events. I think that's a great idea. Let's get cracking. The first issue we're going to talk about are several social controversies as a result of some supposed human rights issues in Qatar, which overshadowed the build-up to the tournament. Obviously, with a tournament of such scale, there will be a plethora of opportunities for employment, especially given that 85% of Qatar's population are migrant workers. Um, having been employed, these workers can send back remittances to their home countries. Uh, that's right, and also the process helps develop international relations and also economic development in the receiving country. So, socially, it sounds like there are really only benefits to this tournament, but I think I remember hearing about some issues in the news. That's right. The, uh, the treatment of many of the migrant workers employed for the tournament has been criticised under health and safety concerns. Yeah, so 30,000 migrant workers were employed to construct the seven stadiums for this tournament. And leading up to the tournament, human rights organisations have come forward with their opinions. Yeah, that's true. And I remember seeing an example of this uh, for the Amnesty International's uh, when they said that the employees faced difficult working conditions um, and very, very little pay. Yeah, but of course there will be many different viewpoints when debating such an accusation as this. Um, the Qatari government claimed that there had been only three work-related deaths, while the tournament organisers reached a figure of 40. And um, how much was it from outside sources? Uh, well, from the, the Guardian, I think, the number of deaths is estimated to be in the thousands, so mm -hmm. it's fairly obvious that there's some uncertainty around these disputed figures, and what we have to ask ourselves is, how many deaths is a tournament really worth? Yeah, 
Um, very poignant. And with the next World Cup coming up in 2026 in Canada, USA and Mexico, this social issue has to be something that will carefully, that will carefully be considered by the organisers in the lead-up. As we know, Qatar is a strictly Muslim country, so they have strict rules in place. Uh, this means that one, women are very restricted in what they can do and what they can wear. Um, and interestingly, I think I saw around a quarter of the population is female, uh, which is down to a huge influx of males as migrant workers that are probably in the 20s, 30s area if we looked at a population pyramid. Yes, and it is also illegal to be in a homosexual relationship in Qatar, which is very controversial at the moment given heightened awareness of LGBTQ rights in recent years. Um, Tom, what other cultural differences can we see in, in Qatar? Uh, well, along with that, um, we see that drinking and swearing in the country is actually forbidden. Uh, so when we look at it deeper, uh, the sponsor Budweiser could be in a bit of trouble. Yeah, so after the last-minute ban of alcohol at the tournament, Budweiser, who have, been, who have sponsored the tournament for 36 years, tweeted, well, this is awkward, as they were left with a colossal amount of beer that was meant for the World Cup. And obviously this turn of events uh, led to the creation of the hashtag Bring Home the Bud, uh, which was started as containers of the beer were dropped around the globe, uh, despite the potential loss of around $75 million dollars uh, this could be seen as an exciting marketing venture uh, for the company. All sorts of observations could be made of this, but speculation has suggested that the tournament was extremely successful, not only down to some of the stellar football on display, but also perhaps um, due to there was the fact that there was no issues of poor alcohol fueled fan behaviour. Mm, exactly, and to be honest, to round this off, this section of the podcast, uh, we could say that the banning of alcohol and the upset around this clash of cultures maybe wasn't such a bad thing. That's a strong argument given the extra marketing for a big company like Budweiser and the avoidance of issues with fans. In the, the majority of the media coverage uh, speculating on the matters uh, we've just discussed, there was a lot, there was a lot of uh, Western exceptionalism uh, to be observed. And what is that exactly, please, Tom? Well, that's quite a fancy term I've used there, but Western exceptionalism is the, the belief that the West are sort of superior uh, to other nations and cultures. Um, okay, so in terms of globalisation, we see the West um, rise to the top to dictate the ins and outs of what other countries are doing. The westernisation of the world has been hugely prevalent in the last hundred or so years, what with the rise of the internet and huge travel and trade developments. That's, that's true. However, in this case, uh, the Western media has been heavily criticised uh, for t attempting to, the, to govern uh, the way other cultures rule their country, uh, Muslim Qatar in this case. Yeah, this is because the media we see has a Eurocentric viewpoint. Sources like the BBC, for example, are written and released under Western and European ideologies. So basically, as a result, the differences in Qatari culture are more harshly speculated on with uh, Western bias.
the organisers of the, the World Cup claim that uh, the Qatar World Cup will be the first carbon neutral edition of the tournament. This may seem odd due to the huge amounts of air miles players and fans have to reach, have to cover to reach the tournament. Um, there are around 1,300 daily flights in and out of the country while the tournament was taking place. That's amazing, but the organisers tackled this claim by using energy-efficient stadiums and low-emission buses and public transport, etc. Well, that could be um, an example of what we call greenwashing, which is the process of conveying a false impression uh, and misleading uh, people about how uh, the product or the tournament in this case is actually environmentally sound. So they in a sen- essentially might, may have deceived people around the world that the tournament would be environmentally friendly when it actually is not. Um, because stats like the fact that 1.5 million fans came into the, the country when the normal population is only double that anyway. So a uh, 50% influx in the, in, the, in the population sure to cause an environmental impact. These fans were staying in 60,000 apartments, 50,000 hotel rooms and 9,000 rooms in fan villages spread all across the country, needing to travel everywhere they went to each game on the daily. So surely it can't be an environmentally friendly tournament. I have to agree with you there and also the grass seeds uh, in aid to keep the, the pitches in a good conditions uh, were actually flown in from uh, North America on, on planes. Uh, and obviously the fields don't water themselves. In a desert country like that, uh, rainwater is rather scarce. So the groundskeepers uh, who maintained eight stadium pitches as well as the 136 practice fields, uh, had to douse the field with around 10,000 litres of desalinated water every day in the winter. Um, We haven't found the exact figures of the carbon footprint of this tournament, but I'm sure they'll come to the throw soon and we will see exactly how the the World Cup impacted the environment. Um, That's all all from us from now and thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much to Tom and Miles for another fascinating episode looking at how much different geography there is to explore within the World Cup. Do join us again for JogPod.